This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Lugo Levitz Mable. And I'm Yannick Maria. And what's our topic for today, Yannick? The low end of tech product lineups. But before we start, I think you have some follow-up. Yes, I do. Uh, on episode 49, we talked about last year's iPhone and Apple Watch announcement. And surprise, surprise, there was <laughs> there was an Apple event uh, last week. And oh, really? Yeah. I, sure I don't know that. if you've heard hmm. about it. There's this new iPhone. It's called iPhone X. It's very weird. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so last year's iPhones and Apple Watch had a really cool feature, which is if you bought them in Japan, uh, you could use Suica mobile payments with them because they had a Felica compatible NFC chip. And what ended up happening a little bit after that episode is people found out that actually all Apple Watches and phones have Felica compatible NFC chips, except they're only enabled for use in the Japanese territory, which fucking sucks. And one of my friends last year bought a Apple Watch in Japan just so he could use it on the train. Um, this year, the chips have Felica active in all regions of the world, meaning now you can buy an iPhone outside of Japan and use it as a Suica card for payments, or you can use your watch to ride the train if you're traveling to Japan, which naturally has made me want to update all my devices. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. that's an hard problem. But there's no iPhone SE update for you. I know, and we'll talk about the iPhone SE a little bit later, because it's the low-end product in the lineup. Um... Another detail which is important if you're considering uh, buying an Apple Watch for travel purposes is that it also seems that the cellular Series 3 cannot roam on international networks, which is also very lame, but I guess it's to be expected for a first-generation cellular product. And besides, if you've seen the reviews today, it seems like the cellular Series 3 might not be so hot right now, so to be continued. Uh, at the start of the summer, I reported that someone was... Uh, starting this project for Google Summer of Code to port Swift to Haiku, which is an open source re-implementation of BOS, which is an operating system that is near and dear to my heart. And the summer is now over. And guess what? Swift 3.1 and 4 now build on Haiku. Applications Ooh. relying on Foundation and or LibDispatch can now build and run on Haiku. Uh, now, there are still some things that need to be done. There's no support for Swift Package Manager yet. Uh, you can't debug your apps. You can only build them, which, I mean, if you're a really great coder, that's not really a problem. <laughs> uh, and uh, SourceKit, which is uh, the entire framework around uh, doing source annotations and whatever for uh, um, Swift code, uh, currently doesn't all, uh, doesn't work on Haiku either. But it is in the list of follow-up tasks for after Summer of Code. So maybe there's going to be progress in the coming months. But it's really exciting to see Swift come to even arcane operating systems that nobody uses, but operating systems that are very well designed and very smartly put together. Uh, finally, follow-up to follow-up. Uh, last week we talked about ReplayKit, and I got some more ReplayKit news this week. Uh, so Touch Arcade posted something this morning, uh, laying out basically all of the replay kit extensions which exist. And I learned about a new one called Omelet Arcade, which is a really weird name for, uh, a replay kit extension. However, uh, what's cool about Omelet Arcade is it lets you multi-stream to numerous services, including Twitch. Uh, Ooh, so nice. you can stream to Twitch via replay kit. And now because of screen recording, which is built into, uh, built into Control Center, you can stream any game to Twitch uh, on iOS, uh, unless the developer has blocked it from being replay kit streamable, uh, which is sort of like uh, f for AirPlay stuff, like you can say, I want to opt out from this being uh, streamed. Uh, you can sort of do that. Uh, as far as I know, very few games actually do this. So right now it's a free-for-all. You can stream. One big limitation, it's only 480p streaming right now, um, but whatever. It still seems completely inexcusable to me that this was implemented by a third-party developer first and not Twitch themselves. However, I have a bit of an explanation for this coming from someone who worked at Twitch. Hopefully, they all won't get their API access killed too by Switch, like some uh, YouTube uh, app developer recently, well, ProTubeDev. Yeah, the, I, I think the thing that is going to prevent that from happening is that Twitch has no app that they themselves make which allows you to stream on Twitch. Instead, it's all third-party apps which allow you to stream to, to Twitch right now. So unless, like, and this would sort of make sense given that there's a Twitch desktop app, like, unless they built Twitch streaming into the Twitch desktop app, um, that is not going to happen anytime soon. Uh, because, again, everyone who streams on Twitch is streaming through third-party app right now because there are no official Twitch streaming apps. Um, so someone who worked at Twitch told me that 
Twitch is philosophically against the technology that Apple demands replay kit extensions use, which is HTTP uh, live streaming, which is an open standard that pretty much everyone has adopted because if you want to be on iOS at all, you sort of have to support it. Uh, and they're fine with implementing HTTP live streaming for watching Twitch streams because otherwise they would be completely absent from the platform. However, they are not comfortable with the inverse, which is using HTTP live streaming for streaming to Twitch because philosophical reasons. They would not go further than that. But that is the reason that Twitch does not have a replay get extension, which is fucking stupid reason if you're a user. But maybe they have some smart reasons that they would like to write a blog post about, hint, hint, would be very appreciated if you did because it sounds like bullshit to me. So did you buy this uh, Omelette streaming app then? Uh, I have not tried it yet because, again, this post came out today and I was too busy uh, going to the dentist earlier and I haven't had the chance to play with it yet. And by the way, my mouth was half numb since 3 p.m. However, right before the podcast, it just went back to normal. So I'm very happy that I'm not speaking completely weird this episode because it's going to be a good one. And also, we'll have follow-up, a follow-up, a follow-up once you try it. Yeah, maybe. Uh, that's if I try it. I'm not necessarily sure what I'm going to stream uh, if I actually do this. Uh, Fair enough. Before we move on... Uh, we... Oh, is it the moment? Oh, is not, it yet, not yet, not yet. It, it, okay. It's before the moment. So Okay, it's before. Uh, our anniversary is next month, and we are going to have more details about our big anniversary episode uh, in the month of October. Currently, we are planning it, except it's tough to schedule things because... Normally, the anniversary episode would be during the week that my big project at work is due, and therefore I might be working hella overtime that week. And Yukarivia has some uh, stuff going on that week as well, so we're working out the schedules, but stay tuned to the podcast, and sometime in October, we'll actually give you the details. Uh, yeah. Pr- probably next episode, because otherwise it'll be too late. <laughs> true, true. And maybe w- what we can say right now, that it will be another Limit Bow Plays. Yes, uh, but we're not saying what game yet. Exactly. Okay. So now it is a moment that I rage quit this podcast, so this <laughs> special episode won't happen. Rip. So okay, so I heard that you bought something that may will make me disappointed. I didn't say it would make you disappointed. I've oh, just I've been said keep, that. I've just been keeping it a secret. So the, the backstory to this, because we haven't actually talked about it on the podcast, despite everything. Uh, uh, I think we talked about it. We have so not. Much? You you oh, have okay. been hinting so much at m- wanting me to buy a Nintendo Switch. Yes. But we never actually said that I bought something and you think that it's a Switch. And I've never said that it's a Switch. But I would like to confirm on this podcast right now that I have bought a new handheld gaming system. Which is not the Switch. <laughs> Which is not a Switch. <laughs> of course, I knew it. I'm not dumb. Come on. Well, at first, I thought you were actually thinking that it was going to be a Switch. And oh, come I on. started adding a couple hints here or there that maybe you should tone down your excitement a little bit. So I will send you a link via Skype to a photo of this thing. Oh, my goodness. Uh, if I can find just... where the fuck the window is and okay, yeah, how to chat on Skype because the UI okay. is you trash. Send... Here it is. You can send... Okay. So this is, okay. I, I posted the screenshot on my Japanese account like a couple of days ago. So if you were smart, you could have just checked that account. Uh, I don't follow you, Japan. What the fuck is that shit? So that is called a GPD XD. It is an Android game console. Are, are you out of your mind right now? Or I, no. I think I'm, okay. Uh, I will try Continue to put this the... link in the show notes so you at home can watch this. So yes. check the show notes. So uh, it's kind of a, maybe if I do a small description, it's kind of a DS shape it's a dsxl what? shape it's like literally the same dimensions oh really okay yeah. so it but it only has one screen which is on the top part of it and then all of the rest of it is uh, 720p two... screen like the switch oh interesting uh two joystick uh d-pad uh abxy buttons uh, okay abxy because uh the glare on it i just see uh x and y it also has the playstation shapes on it just because it's a chinese company who likes to put all the symbols on there Okay, and that's mostly a couple of like volume. Oh, there's also L3 and R3 because they use cheap joystick <laughs> and not have the clicky one. So. Well, I think it's more like you can't actually have clicky thumbsticks in something this thin, probably. Oh, interesting. So you bought a crappy Android devices. Crappy Android device. So the backstory for this is... Um, <laughs> I have a PSP, which I've been using for emulation for quite a few years. However, the PSP's battery is sort of starting to be terrible. And I went to the internet and looked up, like, do they still sell replacement batteries for the PSP? And the answer is, 
Well, if you want to buy a USB external battery and use that with your PSP, that is your battery replacement because they don't sell replacement batteries for PSP anymore. So my PSP is sort of retired now, and this has taken over as my emulation device. Uh, this device is kind of crazy because it can emulate all the way up to the Dreamcast at full speed, mm. which is kind wow. of significant. So I can now finally go play Shenmue because I have something that can play Shenmue, and Dreamcast emulation on the Mac doesn't exist. Um or at least it did for three months, and then the emulator never got updated. Uh, so yeah, I can play basically anything up to the Dreamcast, and including PSP games on this. Uh, so it is my new emulation system. It's what I play on the bus every day now, which means that, yeah, I was telling you I can't wait to get on the bus to play with my new toy, and it Come wasn't on. a Switch. <laughs> I, I knew it. Like uh, With all of the ends you made, of course... With all of the reasoning you had behind not buying a Switch, I completely knew you were not buying one. And there was a Nintendo Direct like last week, and I was basically bitching the whole time that none of the games looked any fun. So that was sort of also a hint. Uh, yeah. One thing so that I... is really cool about this device is the fourth button. So there's like volume down, volume up, there's a power button, there's the menu button, which they didn't change the icon for, but like that button hasn't been a thing on Android since Android 2.3. Uh, but the menu button brings up, uh, the multitasking switcher. And then the button after that is the coolest button on this whole thing. It brings up a system wide menu that allows you to configure touch screen bindings for all of the controls on the thing. So you have little markers that you can drag around the screen on top of the app and you can say, this is a virtual D pad here and I want this map to the D pad. I want this right here. Uh, so you can play any Android game with these controls, even if it doesn't support game pads. And so I really mm. wanted to stress test this thing. So I downloaded um, King of Glory, which is a Chinese League of Legends clone, uh, which is made by Tencent, which if you know anything about Tencent, they also own Riot Games, which makes League of Legends, which is super confusing to me because it's literally like a pixel for pixel clone of League of Legends, except they won't brand it and it's by the same company. But whatever, I downloaded it and that thing has like fucking buttons all over the screen and I just put it all over the game controls and it works so well. And I, I have a 100% win rate so far. Uh, and I blame this. Uh, it allows you to cheat super well at mobile games. 10 out of 10. Um, wow. Uh, by the way, uh, on this photo you posted on your other Twitter account. Is that a game or just a... That is my wallpaper. Really? It is a screenshot from a PC98 game whose name I don't remember, but it was really cool, so I decided to put it as a, a wallpaper. I would like to mention that if you put it in the, in the show notes, it is a bit uh, non-safe for work. Uh, there's, uh, there are 2D boobs. 2D boobs, yes. Yes, there's 2D boobs on it, so uh, you've been warned. Okay. Uh, maybe before you go on with the real topic, I do have a couple of other questions about it. Sure, go ahead. Uh, like, is that does it have any like Wi-Fi capabilities? Yep. It seems so. So this right? has Wi-Fi uh, built into it. I think it's not five gigahertz, but otherwise it's like up to N. I think. Okay, and is it running any like? Do you think you have a problem with a uh, Android version running on it? Do you expect to get it updates, or you assume that you? So this will is never get running some... a really old version of Android. It's 4.4, and I think right now the current version is 8. Uh, so it's quite a ways back. However, um, most emulators don't give a shit because they're complete, like, uh, RetroArch, which is sort of like the state of the art, uh, emulation thing on all platforms right now, uh, has its own custom UI done in OpenGL. So it has basically like no reliance on anything other than OpenGL and basic system architecture that is going to be constant across all Android versions. So that shouldn't really be an issue. Um, I think it would be more of an issue if I actually cared more about playing actual Android games. Uh, but I don't really have anything I really plan on playing that is specific to Android. It's really more as an emulation machine. And as long as the emulators keep working, I don't really care. Okay. Last but not least, what was the price for it? Uh, so I got a really good deal for this. Uh, Normally, these are around 200 Canadian dollars. However, uh, if you go hmm. to YouTube and look at any review of this thing forever, like the, the store that sells them is very generous with the, uh, discount code. So you can easily find like a 20% off coupon code. And that's what I used. So it cost me, I think, 160 uh, total Canadian. Oh, and, oh, that's nice. That's not that bad for, uh, like a Android tablet or tablet-like device yeah and by the uh, way for reference the screen is five inches big so it's about the size of the ps vita screen if you have one of those hmm okay that's interesting 
And was that a special import or you were able to get it? Because you showed me some like, tracking uh, screenshots of it being in Vancouver. So it was a direct import from China. Yes. Uh, huh. A lot of the stores that sell this thing look super sketchy because they are like... Every store in China has the same fucking template, which is kind of baffling. Like if you go to AliExpress, they have the same exact template as like every other store with an English uh, language option in China. <laughs> um, so sometimes it looks super sketchy, but I ordered mine from uh, Banggood, I believe it's called, which is a really strange name for a store. But it took three weeks to a month to get here, but it worked. So I'm not complaining. Oh. Which is not that bad for goods directly shipped from China. Yeah, and there were other shipping options, but I, I didn't want to blow through the complete rest of my entertainment budget for the year. <laughs> Good. So I uh, guess we'll get some more follow-up about this? Maybe. Hmm. Now let's move on to your main topic. Yeah, let me just close this image here, and let's move on to, yep, yeah, main topic. Okay, so... While the bulk of the Apple podcasting universe is discussing, discussing the very high end of the iPhone lineup with the new iPhone 10, which is not, which is not iPhone X, uh, I figured we might as well take this opportunity to look at the underappreciated part of any gadget lineup, which is the low end. Um, a lot of us are privileged enough to be able to afford buying higher end devices, and it's easy to scoff at the low end of the electronics industry, but the role that the low end plays is actually very important. Because technology is meant to facilitate our lives and reduce everyday friction, and having an accessible low-end widens the range of people who can actually benefit from those developments. Um, however, uh, I believe that making a good low-end product requires more than just slamming together the cheapest components. And while a product might technically be functional at the low-end, uh, sometimes it doesn't reach a minimum bar of usability, or long-term use of those devices or software can be really challenging. Uh, so this episode, I want to showcase novel approaches to the low-end market uh, that actually demonstrate some thought, uh, actually went into the planning of their product strategy for these things. Uh, so hopefully you learn a couple things about low-end initiatives and various products. Uh, only one of these products is sort of weird because it's an accidental low-end product, and we'll get into that a little later. But I want to start off with Android One and Android Go. So these are two of Google's numerous initiatives over the years to make low-end devices more usable for people in developing countries who make significantly less than we do, and therefore have no choice but to buy low-end devices. I have a friend in Indonesia who is using a 2011 Sony Ericsson. Sony Ericsson, do you remember that brand? Sony Ericsson I do. I do. Android 2.3 phone. And I feel really, really bad for her, but that's the best she can afford right now. Uh, so... Android One is sort of a program that was put in place to uh, benefit people like her. Uh, it's a program that was announced in September of 2014, and it's a line of low-end devices that are blessed by Google and have strict specifications for design, marketing, support, and software. Um, so what differentiates uh, Android One phones from other low-end Android phones is that uh, Google completely handles the software distribution for these phones. It runs stock Android. Carriers and manufacturers have no say in what goes on the phone, just as it should be on any Android phone, to be perfectly honest. But different podcast. Uh, <laughs> yeah. On next episode. Yeah. Th this means that unlike my GPDXD, they get security patches and OS patches <laughs> because Google actually gives a shit. Um, congratulations. Uh, every year they release a new generation of these phones and more countries keep getting added to this program every year. For example, like this year, for some reason, USA is part of Android One phones and you can buy, I think it's a Xiaomi phone uh, in the US, which is technically an Android One phone. And there are certain guarantees as to how much, uh, how many years it'll be supported and whatnot. Uh, again, Google sort of decides which features are in these phones so that you don't have crazy features that cost a lot to make or you don't wind up with crazy Samsung features that make no sense like Bixby. Uh, uh, they are in control of the marketing where they try to have kiosks inside of uh, electronic stores that show these phones as good low-end phones as opposed to having them blend in with all of the other phones or having people trying to upsell you on the highest phones. Um, so yeah, really, really cool stuff. Uh, I assume also that battery life is better on these phones because it's running stock Android and it doesn't have the stupid Samsung skin that eats up all your battery. Uh, so really cool stuff. However, that's just the hardware side of the thing. So this year, 
Google announced Android Go, and this is like my favorite Google I.O. announcement, and nobody cared about it, but it's so cool. Uh, so what Android Go is, it's, it's a low-end distribution of Android, which is made for phones with a gig or less of RAM. And it was announced alongside Android Oreo at Google I.O. this year, and Google uh, in the future, every Android version will have an Android Go fork that, to go alongside it. Um, right now, I think it's sort of in the honeycomb uh, sort of realm where... It's a one-off fork, and eventually it'll be merged into the main tree, um, but I'm not entirely sure about that. Uh, Android Go is primarily focused on countries with limited connectivity and multiple languages and has features that benefit those use cases, which is very interesting. There's a special storefront on the uh, Google Play Store for light versions of applications which are less than 10 megabytes in size. Uh, recently, there's been all this discourse about iPhone application sizes, which was kind of hilarious with like the Facebook app taking like 400 megs to update uh, every two weeks or whatever, and how that snowballs into huge data costs at the end of the year. Uh, 10 megs in size, reasonable size for apps that do a reasonable amount of things and aren't trying to be another operating system. Uh, they didn't stop there, though. There are also variants of the Google applications, which are included with uh, Android Go, which have specific features for the developing market's needs. So a good example of this is limited connectivity. Um, if you have slow 3G networks in certain countries because they don't have LTE towers built up or whatever, uh, Chrome on these platforms have data saver enabled by default. Um, and yes, there is the privacy angle that this does route all your web traffic through Google first, but it does allow them to crunch down file transfers significantly when browsing the mobile web. And like I can get into the whole po political thing of it's creepy that uh, like Google's initiatives for faster uh, internet and li limited connectivity markets and Facebook's all involve piping all of your traffic through their servers. But to a certain extent, would you rather have usable connectivity in those countries in their place or privacy and barely usable internet like it's it's a hard trade-off to gauge so i'd rather leave it to the people in those countries to decide for themselves um there's also youtube light which U youtube light is like what i want the youtube app to be on all platforms <laughs> <laughs> so youtube light has like almost no bullshit features in it which is like 10 out of 10 here's my money right now uh but it also has support to download videos for offline playback because you Ooh. can't necessarily be guaranteed to have like if there's an hour long uh, lecture you want to watch on YouTube and you don't, you aren't able to guarantee internet connectivity, you can download the videos for offline and watch them later. Even cooler than that, if you have a friend you want to share a video with, but the internet isn't up right now, you can share it over ad hoc networking, sort of like AirDrop or whatever. So you can share your offline copy of the video with your friend via ad hoc networking. And I believe there's also a way that like, if you don't have the video offline, uh, you can send a link to them that will automatically download when they next get online. So cool stuff like that. Uh, cool features. Uh, if you're in a developed country, d downloading videos for offline is available via YouTube Red subscriptions. However, this is offered for free in developing markets because they have deemed that it is better to offer the feature to them for free than to charge them $10 a month when $10 a month is a much greater amount than it is to us. Um, and of course it, all the YouTube Red stuff doesn't actually exist in their country, probably. Um, however, the sharing stuff is entirely exclusive to them. Um, we can't do that here because presumably YouTube would lose ad money that way. Um, but this is a really fascinating uh, angle to Android stuff. And every year at Google I.O., like I have to commend Google for this, they do have a segment where they basically say, here are the features that we're doing this year for developing markets. And a lot of people like shrug that off and say, like, stop wasting my time, go back to the cool tech stuff. But like, this is not a, a negligible portion of the world that they are trying to address with these features. And I think it's very cool to see someone devote stage time to these features and to be honest, like all of this stuff is great and it just makes low end features better for everyone. So fun for everyone. It, and like you said, hopefully they will like merge that back into the main Android version at some point because a lot of the features you mentioned, I think you've been clear with that. We would want to use that every day here too. Some we might never get or you need to pay here to get. A good example of that is downloadable uh, YouTube videos. But a lot of them like, 
light version of YouTube would be nice to have here and maybe not have data saving on by default here, but the availability of it being uh, easier to access on a phone or just options to better manage your internet connection from your phone on a device, uh, even if you are in most in what is considered region where internet is like internet availability is great there's still like rural region here where internal availability is not that great so that was feature hopefully they will come to everybody around the globe yeah like i I was watching a learn goods review of the apple watch series 3 earlier today and in it she's like surfing in the middle of the ocean and she's like i can't believe there's no lte here and i was like that i mean like that is sort of a very privileged complaint because like there are people who have much less connectivity than that and like yeah i know you want to do your cool watch demo surfing in the middle of the ocean but like it's not really that big of a problem uh, oh yeah we get used to that connectivity uh when i was working for a carrier doing my studies i saw a lot of people getting used to that connectivity and bitching about it not being like as widely as available as it is in uh, cities compared to real some part of our real region here in Quebec. Yeah, and like every morning I'm in a tunnel for like a minute and there's no internet connectivity and it feels like the end of the world, but realistically it's not the end of the world. <laughs> there's much worse than that. When you're only limited to having internet like an hour and a half reliably a day, I'm like how do you, these people live? I would not want to be them. And so well, we need to be thankful for what we have. Yeah, and I get used to that with the subway here in Montreal. I live in a part of Montreal where the internet connection in the subway is not yet done. So, rip. Yeah, rip. Okay, next one is also a Google product. Can you guess which one this is? Android again? No. Okay, then my, I would say Chrome OS. Yeah, Chromebooks. Ooh. It's super easy to complain about Chromebooks if you're a Mac user, because as Mac users, we use real software. However... Oh, <laughs> come on tonight. Oh my you know goodness. I'm not lying. <sighs> so most of the world doesn't have this kind of computing experience. Uh, people have been trained on Windows for years to not install software because they have been told by family and friends that if they install anything, their computer will be in- infested with malware. And if you don't have very good judgment, yes, that is what happens. Uh, but because of this, uh, it's very hard for quality software to thrive on the platform that is Windows. And aside from spending time in Office and games, most people's time is spent inside their web, web browsers. But the question comes up, if the only thing you're using on the computer is the browser, then what difference does it really make if the operating system is literally just a browser? And... Like, the other day, uh, one of my friends was having issues with media devices whenever Chrome was open, and this basically led me to believe that something he had open was fucking with the USB over HTML thing that we talked about that was a terrible idea. Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. Really? So, browsers are practically oh. operating systems already, so you might as well just cut out the middleman and just use the browser directly. Uh, so, Chromebooks capitalized on this opportunity. Um Windows users are used to terrible lives inside their browsers, and now they have made a computer, which is literally just the browser. Your entire computer lives in the cloud, so if anything happens to your computer, you can just log into the new one and everything is there. And for a lot of people, that is just a load off their shoulders. It's simple and understandable what happens with this computer. And on top of that, like you get away from all of the problems that having a Windows PC implies. Uh, one of the variant products uh, to the GPDXD that I bought, the little Android handheld thing, there is another one called the GPD Win, which is a full Windows 10 computer in the same form factor. It's a little bit thicker because there's a fan in it. Uh, and there's another... But still, it's impressive. Yeah. They have a... uh, one of my friends has, a, has one, and he is very happy about it. The problem is i wanted more than three hours battery life and if i'm mainly Ooh. going to be doing emulation and not playing pc games there's no real point to get the windows version uh and like the other issue with that is when i was considering my purchase is well then i have a windows pc to deal with and i have to deal with windows update and i have to deal with antivirus software and i don't want that on a device that i'm primarily going to be using to game with um and so i don't have that issue uh, but Chromebooks don't have that issue either. There's no risk of viruses and malware. Your biggest threat is really like installing dubious Chrome extensions and phishing emails. Like that's more or less what the biggest threats on the platform is right now. Um, and on top of that, 
Chromebooks are incredibly cheap and closer to the computing paradigm that most are familiar with already, and that makes it a much more palatable option at volume for enterprise and education deployments. Like, I am, like, 100% iPad power user. Like, these days, I basically don't use my laptop anymore. Uh, but I am willing to admit the fact that to a lot of people, the iPad as a main computer, especially in education and enterprise, seems like a bit of a risk because the workflows on that platform are not known by most of their employees and they would have to develop all new ones. Whereas on the Chromebook, if everyone is already using browser-based software, they can basically just truck along on their same workflows and everything keeps working. And as we've covered numerous times on the show before, people are afraid of change and they will stick to things that force them not to, uh, don't force them to change. And Chromebooks play into that narrative much better than the iPad does. Um, and my mom used a Chromebook for like two and a half, three years, and she would actually prefer to have a Chromebook than to use a Mac, which is alien to me as a concept, but she spends 100% of her time in Chrome, so it makes sense. Um, but yeah, like I think there is a place in the market for Chromebooks, uh, and it's pretty smart what they've done. It's just not for me, uh, which is an explanation for a lot of products, but like Chromebooks is probably the one that it most applies to because I am such a picky motherfucker when it comes to software. Agreed. I do agree with your last statement. Okay. This next one is going to come as a surprise because it's not actually low end product. It's an accidental low end product. And you will get, well, you could be able to get exactly what I mean. As soon as I finish saying these three words, windows phone seven. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I see where you're going with so, this. So a lot of people know, know me th that I am a big Windows Phone 7 cheerleader because I actually really believe in how good this operating system was. It just wasn't at the task that most people in the tech industry wanted it to be good at. The modern... And I think it's, it is the same for me too. Remember, I even like... Be, I am also a cheerleader with my money. I even bought one of the first, like, the first Windows Phone 7... Yeah, uh, Windows Phone 7 phones, like the Nokia. Yeah, Android? you got the first yeah. Nokia ones. I have a Samsung Omnia 7, which is still being used, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Ooh. Um, so the modern smartphone is incredibly good at being a multi-purpose computer in your pocket. However, there is a class of users who do not want a multi-purpose computer in their pocket, uh, specifically first-time smartphone owners. And Windows Phone 7, what it truly excelled at was being the gateway drug to the smartphone lifestyle. Um the entire operating system design was revolved around people, not apps. And this is sort of one of those polarizing ideas because some people looked at the failure of Windows Phone 7 and said, this is why you don't design operating systems around people and you design it around apps. But actually that, that's not what the thing is, is there's two classes of people who think about phones in different ways. And Windows Phone 7 was really great for certain types of people, except they were never exposed to it for political reasons, mostly. Um, and again, if you're a smartphone power user, this approach made everything you do on your phone suboptimal. Because like, if you're like me, you don't actually give a shit. Your starting point for doing things on your phones is not, who am I going to do this with? But it's rather, I want to go see Instagram. I want to go see Snapchat. And you have like verbs in mind instead of nouns, if it makes sense. And both approaches work. Um, in particular, like what you could do with uh, the people first approach is people were treated as equals to apps. You could put people on your home screen. You could say, I want this to be a link to go directly to the contact card for my most important people in my life. Or you can say, just make it a quick dial for the phone, um, which makes this fantastic for people who only really use their phones to call like three people and take photos. Like put the three people on your start screen, put the camera app there. Congratulations. You have the best home screen in the world. And yes, there are other apps, uh, there are other platforms which allow you to do this, except the rest of the operating system is bogged down in so much complexity that there's no real point. Whereas Windows Phone 7 just put that front and center and it was really great. Um, and like we, despite Windows Phone 7's market failure, uh, which is largely due to, uh, phone carriers having strong incentives to pushing toward uh, people towards Android, uh, even though Windows Phone 7 might have been a, matter, a better fit for a lot of types of users. And there were some strategic faux pas on Microsoft's part, like 
Windows Phone 7 phones were not upgradable to Windows Phone 8. They decided, like, no, we're just going to completely cut this off here. And basically, phones that had been out for two years were immediately, like, useless uh, in the Windows Phone uh, continuum of product versions. It was very strange and jarring. Uh, to users of the platforms and people who believed in the Windows Phone platform that basically they were said like, oh yeah, you bought a phone six months ago? Well, too bad. You can't actually upgrade to the new version of the OS, which is a major fuck you to those users. Yeah, and I got the feeling too that they never had kind of a flagship phone, right? Their flagship was always kind of middle tier. There was always like, you always say, you could say like, but yeah, if you are a like major Windows Phone like fanboy you could not get the best IN Windows Phone Windows Phone phone because there was just middle ones. Like you all always neglect on something. Either it was performance, uh, camera performance too, like with CPU performance. There's always something. I that have was one objection to, to the... this. Well, first of all, like the point I'm making is that this is a great low end product. So you complaining that there's not a good high end phone is actually kind of amusing. No. But the other thing, yes, but whoa, wait. My point regarding <laughs> that is to drive the ecosystem that Windows needed for that. They kind of need to have like flagship people having flagship phone to just drive the ecosystem. I'm not saying that they should have built a market around like high end phones, but to push people on those low-end phones saying, yeah, yeah, you should use that because it's better than Android because of, like, this people um, mentality, ideology. And by doing so with, like, flagship people with flagship phone, it would maybe help them a bit better. Okay, the other objection to your thing is the Nokia Lumia PureView 1080 or whatever it was called. I don't remember the actual number, but I think it was 1080. The one with the crazy 43 megapixel camera that I wanted to buy... <laughs> it was running Windows Phone? I thought yes. it was running... Uh, no, there, there, was, there was an old one running Symbian, and then they made the Windows Phone version of it, and it was insane, and I wanted to buy it because it was, like, the best Windows Phone ever made. That is the flagship Windows Phone. However, like, I know the one person who bought that phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, No, I forgot about that one. I always assumed that it was only the Symbian version. Nope. Hmm. The Symbian version is actually a hideous phone. It is disgusting, but the Windows Phone version is actually... No, but not just the UI, but like the physical phone is disgusting. But the Lumia version of it is gorgeous. And especially in yellow, it was the best color. I was like, "Mm, this is a great phone. 10 out of 10. Oh, yeah. Now that you mentioned the color, yes, I do remember it. It was so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. But unfortunately, Windows Phone is dead. Well, it's not dead because my boss has a Windows Phone. It's running Windows 10. She reminds me every day. Hi, if you're listening. Uh, But aside from him, and I I think even he would admit not very many people have this kind of phone these days. And they've sort of deviated from their original strategy because they would rather go after market share than go after their values, uh, which is unfortunate because I thought the original product was better than what they have now. But at the same time, I don't really blame them. I'm sort of surprised the Windows Phone thing is still a thing, but okay. Maybe to go back to your argument about them being a low-end phone, like both my parents started with smartphone with Windows Phone 7 phones. I was like, you know what? This is your your gateway drug to the smartphone industry and Android won't be a good idea. Like... And after that, my parents got Android phone too, and now they uh, both have iPhones. And they kind of realized, yeah, it was uh, the Windows Phone phone was like simple to use, and really was kind of uh, okay. Sometimes they could get lost. That was the main problem: is they would like end up in a where in somewhere in the OS where they would get lost or confused where they were. And that was the main problem they had with those two phones. Whereas Windows Phone, the UI was so simple that they would never happen. Oh, really? That would really happen. And with iOS, it also happens, like, sometimes. I would say it's between Android and Windows Phone. Yeah, and the biggest compliment I can play, I can pay Microsoft for Windows Phone 7 specifically is that it was Apple-like attention to detail in how the main included apps worked. As soon as you got third-party stuff, stuff, stuff started falling apart, right? But... Like the core apps that were included with the phone, there was as much love and attention to detail in that set of applications than there was in the original iPhone. 
It's funny to say so because most of the third, the quote unquote third party apps were written by Microsoft yeah. because nobody wanted to write apps for them. There, there I was even a crazy f- thing that was very much like workflow where you could actually build your own apps for Windows Phone in it. And it was crazy. Uh, but you actually had to write code, which is why it was like half unusable because you had to write phone uh, code on your phone and the, the keyboard was fine, but it didn't have any affordances for writing code, which made it terrible for writing code. Um, but yeah, there, there was a lot of really interesting experimentation going on in Windows Phone 7. And I love that platform in the same way that a lot of people really love the Palm Pre and what WebOS did. Um, but it's a completely different mindset from what was going on in those phone OSs at the time. And I think that it is another viable approach to the low end. Identify a core set of users in the low end who have a different kind of needs than what the mass market phones are delivering. And then the, like the, screw up in windows phone was more like and then put your marketing money behind that idea and betting on that idea instead of saying hey please use us instead of android and ios for arcane reasons that don't actually really work because the our reasons we were listing are not appealing to the people that this product would appeal to uh so it was more of a marketing screw up and numerous political influences in the carriers that made the demise of windows phone happen and not so much the product being bad as you can hear both of us say like we love windows phone it is fantastic and we wish we were, it would still it was still around um okay so let's move on and talk about my phone which is the iphone se yeah iphone se is of course the low-end product in the current iphone lineup and fundamentally uh, if you're not aware it's the iPhone 6S minus a couple bling features like 3D Touch and the Taptic Engine. And they took that phone and they put it on the body of an iPhone 5 or 5S and added a rose gold option. And that is the iPhone SE. And it is my favorite iPhone I have ever owned. It is so good. And the next like 15 minutes is going to be like the love letter to this phone. Um, Apple's low-end strategy prior to the introduction of the iPhone SE was rather dubious. Uh, they kept around phones from previous years and kept sliding them down the lineup until they were too old to keep being sold. Uh, I am not a fan of this approach. Uh, in general, I think like this is one of the worst things that has happened in the Tim Cook era of Apple. Um, but I'm not going to expand too much on that. Uh, the, the first real deviation from that formula was the iPhone 5C, which is another gorgeous product that unfortunately sort of failed. Uh, they put the iPhone 5 in a beautiful, colorful, glossy plastic case. I still see see them in the wild uh, a couple times a week. And like 90% of the times is the green one, which looks phenomenal. Oh, yeah, it is amazing. And seriously, nearly bought one. Like all the colors time. are really great. Uh, the green, the pink, and the uh, yellow are my three favorites. Uh, iPhone 5C, like, I honestly wish it was still part of the lineup because those cases, man, they're so pretty. And, like, right now, there's so limited options for the colors in iPhones, even more so than we did last year. Uh, and I wish there was, like, some colorful product in the Apple lineup aside from Apple Watch right now. Um, but we're slowly losing that. Um, so... The problem with the iPhone 5C is that there's a certain prestige to carrying an iPhone, and in cultures where self-image is valued very heavily, uh, namely Asian cultures, uh, carrying a 5C had a negative impact because it screamed to the entire world that you bought the cheap phone instead of having plausible deniability that you bought a flagship phone two years ago. Uh, which, again, sounds completely nuts if you're, like, Western culture trying to be humble, whatever. Like, in those cultures, image is, like, a big part of any kind of purchase you make. And unfortunately, that made the 5C not very successful in the markets that arguably needed low-end options the most. Um, Compared to here, where like when people started to buy f- a f- iPhone SE when they got released, people were saying, you got the good deal out of the iPhone uh, success because it's like mostly it, but six months later at nearly half the price. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a ridiculous value. Uh, I, I laughed this week when uh, someone said, like, uh, I think it, I can't remember if it's Schiller or Federighi said, nine ninety nine is a value price for the iPhone ten, and I was like, oh please, <laughs> don't say that. The real value is the iPhone SE because it launched as the low end model six months after. Uh, was it even six months? It, it felt it was, shorter. It was- it was about six months because if I recall correctly, it launched with um some iPad updates. So it was like in, in March. The spring, yeah, yeah, yeah. Spring season. But yeah, so it was like six months after the introduction of the brand new flagship, 
the low-end model is 90% of the flagship. And in between that, you could buy an iPhone 6, which was the worst phone in basically any imaginable way, uh, imaginable way, except for the screen size, which was baffling. Like, you were stupid to buy anything but the SE or the iPhone success at that point in time. Um, so yeah, uh, we both have friends, or even sometimes mutual friends, that have bought old iPhones when they were available, uh, as budget options and immediately regretted it a couple of months later. Uh, because they felt like their phones felt obsolete. Uh, and I would say personally, maybe we, before we continue on that, is the main reason for them feeling this way was because of the storage capacity and less well, that about too. the performance of the phone. So uh, Apple is kind of slowly but surely fixing that problem. The fact that all of the new phones right now are uh, at minimum, at minimum like 64 gig. Hopefully, down the line, uh, it makes it better uh, for those phones in two, three years. Uh, but still, I think even the seven, seven and success are still available in like 32 gigs. I'll have to check. But the fact that they start like, slowly but surely fixing that like low tier storage capacity is greatly helping that problem. But generally, uh, it's been pretty much my standard advice to tell people who are considering buying an iPhone that if they're going, if they aren't going to be buying the year's new iPhone, they might as well not bother getting an iPhone because the expense really isn't worth it if you factor in that it's, it might have a year or less lifespan in it than the latest model. Like, if you buy a new iPhone, you can use it comfortably for three to four years if you want to. Maybe more than that and get really long life out of it. So you might as well just splurge and get the latest model and then don't buy a phone after two years instead of always feeling like you have to upgrade every two years or whatever. Like, I find it actually kind of maddening how much of the Apple community actually upgrades their phone every year because, like, the differences are not that significant, to be honest. Like, and it feels like these people have, like, a ton of money to throw around. Maybe I'm just bitter because, like, the phones cost ridiculous in Canadian dollars these days. But, and especially with, like, the prices going up and I don't want to get into all of that. But, like, it never felt like a good deal to actually buy anything but the year's iPhone. And the iPhone SE sort of broke that pattern because suddenly there was a low-end option that didn't feel low-end at all. It had more longevity out of the box than any previous low-end iPhone because it was at parity with the flagship. And that never happened before. And it was like a phenomenal thing. the only thing that made it like a uh, low end was really the screen and not because the screen was bad just because of the size like it was a typical I actually prefer saying, like, that <laughs> agreed uh but uh it will also like it uh, a thing for people that love small screens on small phones but compare it like people they will see it in store they see like the smallest one then the medium one and the big one and they would see like oh like small is cheap or cheaper let's put it this way and then they could put the lineup in it but at at that time you had the se that was kind of the smallest phone with uh, good internals and but all of them it will compose a good lineup and the decision was easy to do it's like you want a small one or you don't have the money to get the big one so you might have a a success or you can play between the se or the 6s normal or you do 6s and 6s plus like that this is where I think most people were fitting is either the first two ones or the last two ones. Yeah, right now, it's actually kind of... I hadn't put, like, two and two together, but, yeah, right now, the lineup actually starts with SE, Success, Success Plus, and those are basically, like, for the most part, the same phone, except the screen size is different, and I think it's it's actually the first time that the same phone has been available in all three sizes at once. Yeah, and the price difference is not that big, especially in Canadian dollar. Like four sixty nine for the SE, uh, 6S is, uh, I have the number right in front of me, 6S is five ninety nine, and 6S Plus is seven thirty nine. So it's about like 130 Canadian dollars per tier. Yeah. So And it makes sense with the recent Apple prices. It's always like the, the tiers are always like 130 Canadian dollars. So you get this, and I think at this point, if we start a small discussion about the current lineup, this is what happens. There's always something, like, there's always a phone at maybe $50, $75, like, each. And then you have, like, one that goes, and then you add $75, then you have another one. You have, all, you have option all the way to the super expensive iPhone ten. 
I I actually think like I, I it's obvious that I don't want uh the old phones to continue sliding down as being part of the low end of iPhones that you can be because I think like fundamentally that is not as good a product as just making a dedicated low end phone like the SE. Um and I think the main reason that we might see a switch in that attitude is actually completely superficial and comes down to naming. I am convinced that they are going to stop using numbers at the end of their iPhones because like iPhone 11 sounds really stupid. Um, and they're just going to go iPhone and then like it's going to be the new iPhone and people will have to get used to it because like when they tried to do it for iPad 3, I was actually in favor of just the new iPad. Like, yeah, get used to it. Like we don't actually need to number these things. The only people who care about the number of these things is, uh, people in support. And if you can have a distinctive, uh, element of design to each SKU, then you've solved the problem. Like that's the way you identify the products. You don't actually care about having the name anywhere. Um, and I'm a strong believer in that. And if none of the products have, uh, numbers in their name, then you can't have lower end phones that have like iPhone 2016, iPhone 2015, like those are not going to sell because they have the name of the year they were released right there telling you how obsolete they are. And I'm just convinced that they're going to go with like a dedicated low end product. They're going to have the main flagship device. And if the iPhone 10 thing continues and they continue to have like this next generation model always in the pipeline of like what's coming up two years from now in the rest of the lineup, then maybe they actually do go the iPhone X direction and actually call it X. And like, this is the high end future forward looking skew. And like you have a three product lineup and that's how you do your thing. And maybe you all consolidate on the same screen size and all that stuff. Like I can see ways that they can change the lineup so that each of the SKUs becomes like its own product and is no longer reusing iPhones indefinitely for three years, uh, sliding them down lineup. Because I think like, that's just sort of a shitty approach and iPhone SE sort of it's basically says like this might be the new direction they're headed in and I hope they do um but again like all this is speculative we're gonna have to wait a year or two or three to actually see what ends up happening to the product line and I'm very curious to see what ends up happening to the product line because I want Apple to continue making the iPhone SE I selfishly really want the small four inch form factor to continue to live Although iOS 11 is sort of a pain in the ass to use on that screen because everything has giant New York Times headline text up to the top <laughs> of the screen, which is really annoying. Uh, that takes up like the top third of the screen, like, okay, whatever. Um, but I think the entry level iPhone slot would be better served by a purpose built product like the iPhone SE than by having two year old phones take over the low end slot every year. Imagine, imagine that in six months, because we're, we're about, six months away from its second anniversary of DSE. Would you imagine we'll get a new phone at that point? Or you would think from, I guess, what we see with Apple right now, that they would do, uh, they would wait maybe another year to update this phone. Because I think the the idea of like moving the SC six months away from the iPhone 6S was to maybe like put the clear distinction. There's, yes, it's a cheaper model. It's a good iPhone but it is not expected to be the new flagship model. And moving it off schedule, off typical schedule, indicates that message. So I would think personally they would continue on that. I don't know if it will be this year or next year. Hopefully this year, because I think after three years it might be really get old. But uh, we'll see, I guess. I think one of the things uh, that was really striking about the iPhone SE is there were so many advancements in, like, Th- services like Apple Pay and all of those things that the low-end models had become so far beho- behind on and Apple wants these things to succeed as much as possible that it sort of becomes integral to those things' success so that they need to be on every iPhone and it, they needed to be on every iPhone faster than they could actually do the sliding thing uh, so that the old phones get to the end of the lineup. And I think like that is just going to become increasingly evident to Apple and they're going to need to do SE releases maybe every two years. Like I, I'm not sure about the timetable exactly, but I think they need sort of these catch-up moments where the low end catches up to where the rest of the lineup has been for two years. And 
I think every two years is a pretty decent pace, if you ask me, and I would not mind that. And maybe I would just stay on the SE bandwagon for the rest of time if they continue to get this phone and it looks like something I want. Um, because otherwise, like, if they wait like three years or whatever, the other, the rest of the iPhones are going to be so far ahead that it's going to be detrimental to, uh, their other initiatives that the low end phone isn't caught up and all that stuff. So I think, that is maybe the main reason that we're going to see a change in the low end attitude at Apple. In addition to the naming thing I said, because that seems like the most obvious things from the customer's point of view. But yeah. Yeah. Hopefully the SE won't become the new iPod touch because I think <laughs> yeah. the product that lacks, like the, the product that was kind of the low, low, uh, low end iOS device was it. But you could see in the past few years that the iPod touch is kind of like a, Oh, we have this product in our lineup, and we are—we won't say proud of it, but it's part of our lineup. Like what they said about the Mac Mini, and it seems that this device, like it showed that this device was kind of oh yeah, it's an afterthought. We we'll update it sometime, and maybe sometime it's in six months, twelve months. We don't know, and hopefully the SC won't be a special edition like the name suggests, and it will be a recurring special edition. On the topic of the iPod Touch, actually, I would not have trouble. Imagining Apple rethinking that product line entirely and actually making an Apple Music streaming device that is purpose-built for Apple Music streaming instead of making a generic iOS device. And I think like a lot of people are not sure about that thing. And to a certain degree, like that's sort of how they're positioning Apple Watch Series 3, which might actually just completely screw over what I just said. Yeah, I was about to say that. Yeah. You'd- Kindly describe like the that's new the Apple commercial Watch. literally for the series three is you can listen to Apple Music everywhere, which sort of defeats the purpose of having an iPod Touch, I guess. But yeah, I, I'm not sure what they're doing with the iPod Touch. Uh, I would rather see them kill it than continue to drag it out this long. Uh, same for the iPad Mini. Uh, but that's not what we're talking about this episode. We're talking about the low end of products, and we're going to end with sort of the curveball in this episode, and I know it's the one you've probably been waiting for the most you could be, and that is K-Cars. Oh, car analogy, I love those. Woo-hoo. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about cars recently, and uh, K-Cars Ooh. is a big part of that thought. Uh, for people who don't know, K-Cars are a Japanese size class for automobiles that was tailor-made to comply with Japanese tax and insurance regulations. Um If you are a fan of economics, this is an example of Galapagos Syndrome. Uh, Galapagos Syndrome was named after Darwin's discovery of isolated flora and fauna on the Galapagos Islands that underwent different evolutionary changes than the rest of the world. And in business speak, that equates to product lines in isolation from the rest of the world because they are too focused on the local market, which is a thing that happens a lot in Japan. Uh, Japanese cell phones are another huge example of this. Like Japanese cell phones... 10, 15 years ago had basically all of the features that our smartphones have now, except they were only available in the Japanese market because they were so far ahead on everyone else. How the user experience was total trash. Uh, but that's another episode. Um, so what makes K cars different from regular cars is that they have numbers of limitations, maximum size, maximum weight, maximum motor displacement, or in the case of electric K cars, uh, power consumption. And in the 40s to 70s, when K-cars were just starting up, uh, the maximum motor displacement was 360 cc's. However, this has been raised to 660 more recently in the 90s, which is what it's at right now. Um, so like oh, motorcycle it engines. At, it is still at that level? 660, yeah. That's the max right now. Wow. We're not even at one liter displacement. <laughs> yep. Um And the reason these cars sort of exist is because car ownership in Japan, well, first of all, it's very expensive, but also it requires you to demonstrate that you have adequate place to park your vehicle because space is at a premium. Uh, So K cars, because of the size restrictions, make it much likelier that Japanese people have an actual parking space for it. But in rural areas, you also just completely have that requirement lifted because it's implied that you're, you're going to have space for it because you're in a rural area. There's not that much stuff packed around you, and these cars are tiny, so you should be fine. Um, and these are generally considered to be low-end vehicles, uh, not only because of their size, but also because of all of the tax and insurance framework built around K-cars that make the total cost of ownership significantly lower. Uh, I did a little bit of research about like the amounts that you would save, and most of the fixed amount taxes uh, that are like this much per year or whatever are 30 to 50% lower for K-cars compared to regular passenger cars. 
And it goes even lower than that if you're using your K-car for commercial usage. Um, so, like, delivery vans are almost universally K-cars uh, in Japan because it's so cheap. It's, like, 70% less tax-wise than it is for any other kind of vehicle. So you might as well just go there and you can buy more vehicles that way and make it up. Like, it, it's nuts how uh, how many savings there are if you go K-car uh, for commercial usage. Um, however, like I said, like, K-cars are just so much likelier that you can park them because of how small they are that implicitly what happens is K-cars become the mass market, uh, the the cars that the mass market buys, uh, and that actually influences how good they have to be because this is what the majority of what people are buying, uh, are driving, and therefore you want most of your customers to be happy and not be the minority low-end portion that gets screwed over. Um so manufacturers do whatever they can to make those cars as reliable and as comfortable as possible while also fulfill- fulfilling as many of the end users need as possible within a given model category. Uh, obviously, like if you're making a convertible, it's not going to be a good pickup truck, but uh, there is luckily a huge variety of K cars for different kinds of people. So a good example of this is the Honda Beat, which existed in the 90s. Uh, it was a sporty convertible K-car that fans of the Mazda Miata or S2000 might really, really find interesting because it's sort of that kind of car in a K-car uh, size class, which is really nice. By the way, a lot of these cars you can find in Gran Turismo because Gran Turismo has like every car imaginable. Uh, oh, the cappuccino. Yeah. The Suzuki cappuccino. Suzuki cappuccino oh. is another good example of one of those cars. Uh, Daihatsu makes the Daihatsu Copen, I believe it is, uh, which is a convertible K car that has a much different target audience, uh, than the Honda Beat because their target audience when designing that vehicle was there are a lot of seniors who want to go out but want to have a cool car to drive and they want a convertible so that they and their wife can just get in and drive a convertible around the countryside. And like, that is exactly the target audience for that particular vehicle. Uh, microvans are incredibly popular with young mothers in Japan who want to take their children with them while shopping. Um, and like microvans in Japan are like the most innovative class of vehicle when it comes to finding ingenious places to maximize storage space for bringing your groceries home. Like there are tons of little nooks and crannies you can jam stuff in, uh, for extra storage space, despite being a tiny car. Um, so why am I bringing up all of this? Well, this is sort of a case where the low end being the mass market has actually influenced this category where people have actually had to design p- uh, products that are actually likable. Um, so one of the first things is low end doesn't need to be unfashionable. Like there are fashionable K cars. Uh, in fact, like women are a large portion of buyers for K cars because they actually find that K cars are super customizable and that they can actually like put stickers on their car or whatever and dress it up however they want. And, like, there's a huge culture around the customization of K-cars, even amongst, like, 20-something women, which is not really something we see here. Uh, but, like, it's a total aspect of this that you wouldn't even consider if you didn't know about it. So you can make your low-end, like, customizable or uh, just make trendy designs or more designs that appeal to different kinds of people. Uh it also brings up the question, like, how would we morph our products if we pretended for a second that the low-end product is the mass-market product that everybody's going to buy? Like, how would that influence your product's design if you actually just said, yeah, 60% of the units we sell are this one. Uh, let's design around that and see what changes we would make to our products from that. Uh, if the CEO of the company used this phone for a month, would they tear their hair out after a week? Um, like it's certainly possible that the CEOs of big car companies in Japan are driving like big cars that show off how rich they are, but put them in a K car for a month and they would probably be very comfortable anyway, because K cars are that good. They have been honed to be really good cars within a certain limitation. And like you also, you always hear artists talking about how uh restriction breeds creativities, like K cars are those kinds of restrictions being applied to a class of product that sells very many units. Um, and one of the things that I think is most emblematic of K cars and the thing I really want to pull out of this is what improvements can we make to our products to make it more amenable to the low end users needs instead of trying to morph the low end users behavior to cater to the vision of our greater product line. And 
I think like one of the examples you can take from uh, the cell phone industry in particular that sort of builds into this is dual SIM slot phones. Like that is entirely built around the low end user's needs because users in certain countries carry multiple SIMs with them and change based on whatever the best deal on mobile data is on the day. Like this is not shit I'm making up. Like this is real usage in a lot of countries today. And if you have an iPhone, you better have your little tray with all of your SIM cards and your SIM removal tool with you if you want to do that, or you give up and you always use the whatever SIM is in your phone. But if you have a multi-SIM phone, you can have them in your phone at all times and swap them. And that is genius for those users. And they might actually consider a low-end phone over your high-end phone because your high-end phone is missing that feature that is integral to their actual usage patterns. Yeah, and for those markets, it goes back to your first point in this episode is it might mean not having a phone at all because one of the two networks, they have SIMs for it. The network is down today because of a problem and it will be down for multiple days. Yep. So they can use the service on another uh, carrier and then they still can they still can stay connected and talk with their friends and family. Yep. So I think like K-cars are such a fascinating thing to look at because they have designed around all of these limitations. And I think if product designers and engineers at tech companies actually applied similar limitations to the development of their own products, we would have much greater low-end phones. And yes, I realize that to a certain degree, like these companies don't want to cannibalize their higher-end products, and that is perfectly fine. However, I think the iPhone X is going to demonstrate very clearly that if you make a really high-end product, people are going to be willing to pay whatever price they have to to get it anyway, and that there are always people who are going to be chasing the highest-end thing, and that's fine. Um, but especially now, like I, I feel like, to a certain degree, like I'm lucky that I can pay uh, for my iPhones and all that stuff. But at the same time, like we can't really ignore that prices have been going up for Apple stuff significantly in recent years. And I think a lot of us who are maybe not as rich as most uh, people in the tech industry are starting to look at lower end options for what we consider to be our norm uh, when it comes to consuming Apple products. And I think that looking at the low end markets of all different kinds of products can actually give us an idea on how these products can become better without necessarily cannibalizing the higher end products and to realize all the different kinds of use cases that are actually met by lower end products. And if I have caused anyone today to actually think about these use cases while working on their own products, then that's great and mission accomplished. Good. I think this was a good episode. Yeah. Yeah. And with a good conclusion, that's good. And Yannick mentioned a lot of uh, links that will be that will be able to find in our show notes, and you'll be able to find those show notes at limitlesspossibility.net slash seventy three. You can also find our back catalog of episodes at limitlesspossibility.net. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at, at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. It is important to follow us there because we'll be posting more details about the uh, special anniversary episode that Yannick mentioned at the beginning of the episode. You can also find myself on Twitter at, at Lucanoush. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-C. And you can find Yannick at Sakarina S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.